This message is a presentation of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information about the ministry of Vortex Church, please visit us online at vortexchurch.com. The first week we focused on if we're going to build the right kind of life right now that's going to leave a legacy behind, we have to first understand that our lives are becoming our legacy. And if we're building a life, we have to build it on the right foundation. And in the gospel of, G, or gospel of, of Luke, John, uh, Luke himself uh, records the words of Jesus that say um, that there, there are many different foundations that we could build on, but his words, his teachings are the only foundation that's not going to move. And so if we build our life on him, if we build our life on the foundation of Jesus, even when the storms come, right, we'll be able to weather the storm. Our life won't be shifted like it would be if we built on the wrong foundation. In the second week, week two, we looked at the priorities because when it comes to building, we always build based on priorities. If your family is a family that eats together and cooks, you'll have a big dining room and a big kitchen. If you're a single guy and you build a house and you don't eat at home a lot, you don't cook, you're probably going to have a small kitchen, right? And so priorities dictate how things are built. And Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew very clearly defines what his priorities were. It's just simply that he loved God and he loved people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second commandment, the second greatest is to love your neighbor as yourself. And we looked at some practical ways that we can do that. And last week, you know, the question was, all right, if we get the right foundation, we get the right structure built, how do we get that thing to come alive? Because there's a big difference between just the right structures and actually life existing inside the structures of our own lives. And, and we looked at how God really wants to use each moment. He wants to capture each moment and, and help build a legacy because our lives are becoming our legacies, right? And if we don't capture the moments that we have, we don't realize that, that one moment, one simple moment can change everything. And last week we looked at a, a special guy out of the book of Acts. And we looked at a guy named Saul who met Jesus on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus where he was heading to kill, to, to murder people because they believed in Jesus. And in that moment, his life was changed and actually our lives were changed because the trajectory of the church was changed forever. So it leads to this week. And the real question that I think that I would have if I were sitting in, in your seat is, well, Kevin, you know, if, if I can leave a legacy with my own life, if I can make a difference, what kind of legacy could we leave? What kind of legacy could, could we leave? What kind of difference could we make as a church? And I think to understand that, you kind of have to understand how we got here. How did we get here in this moment? How did all of us arrive at this moment? And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through a couple thousand years of history in just a few minutes. <laughs> As the beginning 
of the book of Acts dawned, Jesus has been murdered, he has been buried, and he has raised from the dead. And the writer of the book of Acts is Luke, so it's kind of the sequel to the book of Acts. And in the first chapter of Acts, Jesus meets with his disciples. He gives them the great last words. You will be my witnesses into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. You'll be my witnesses. And then he goes to be with the Father. And he leaves behind 120 believers. Now, on an average Sunday, think about this with me. We have 150 plus. We're averaging right now about 250 people a Sunday. Jesus in this whole thing started with 120 people who after Jesus left, huddled together in a small room and began to pray for what Jesus had promised. He said, if you will just kind of wait and pray, I'm going to send the comforter. And so they did. And in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit is is descending on the church. And as the, the first Believers encounter the Holy Spirit. They spill out on to the streets in the middle of Pentecost. Peter preaches the greatest sermon in the history of the world in Acts 2. And 3,000 people, 3,000 people, no microphone, no projection system, 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus in that moment. Between Acts 3 and Acts 6, the early church starts to take shape. They begin to install leaders. They begin to create the structures of their early organization. And one of the things that marks the early church is that the believers care about each other. They love each other so much so that we see that they begin to sell possessions, sell land, so that they can take care of those that are among them that are less fortunate so that they can feed the hungry, so that they can house the widows, so that they can be the church. And in Acts 7, one of those young leaders that had been installed, his name was Stephen. Stephen is arrested for preaching Jesus. He's sentenced to be executed and is executed by a man that we first meet in that moment named Saul. In Acts 8, as the persecution formally begins against the church itself, the believers in Jerusalem scatter. They run for their lives, fleeing Jerusalem to neighboring cities as far as Damascus, which is why in Acts 9, that same man Saul goes to his leaders, his authority, and requests permission to pursue them so that he can chase them down, hunt them down, and kill them. And on that road in Acts 9, on his way to Damascus, that young Saul encounters the resurrected Jesus, and his life is forever changed. Saul becomes the Apostle Paul, who we'll see throughout the book of Acts, God uses. In Acts 10 through 11, Peter does something that's remarkable. 
Peter takes the message that has up until this point been almost exclusively reserved for just Jews and says, God doesn't want it to just be us. Everyone's in on this. Jews, Gentiles, the whole world is available to the work of Jesus. Acts 12, we see the transfer begin where the Apostle Paul in his emerging ministry begins to take leadership. In Acts 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul leaves Jerusalem and goes out to do his missionary work, traveling from city to city to city to city, going into the existing synagogues where Jews were gathered, saying, we've been waiting on a Messiah. And he's come. His name is Jesus. He was murdered by us. He raised from the dead. And as he would preach, people would give their lives to Jesus. And he would found churches in places like Ephesus, where he would write a letter to the Ephesians, which became the book in our Bible called Ephesians. In Philippi, which became the church in Philippians, right? That's the book in the Bible that he wrote a letter to. In Acts 15, as questions begin to arise, like how are we going to structure all this? What are we going to tell these people to do? Because as Jews, there were a lot of rules. There were a lot of things they had to do to be good Jews. And uh, these questions begin to arise. What are we going to tell people that they need to believe? What are we going to tell people that they need to do? And so all the leadership descends on Jerusalem and they have a meeting and they decide, you know what? We're not going to put all those rules and regulations on everyone. This is all about Jesus. This is all about our hearts being right with him. And so in Acts 13, the Apostle Paul again leaves Jerusalem. In 16, in Acts 16, immediately following the council, Paul has this vision. And when I told you last week that one moment can change everything, this is one of those moments. In Acts 15, Paul has set a trajectory for their ministry to go into Asia. And as he's sitting on the precipice about to make that journey there, he has a vision that persuades him to go the other direction. And instead of a right, the Apostle Paul takes a left and goes into Europe and Acts 17 and 20 through Acts 20, the Apostle Paul begins to continue his missionary work, progressing all the way through Europe. He would preach in Athens, in the Agora. At that point in history, that meant he, he stood in the middle of some of the most learned people in the world. He would travel from city to city as a Roman citizen with freedom and be able to speak in a language which everyone would understand. Because the church in Jerusalem begins to struggle in Acts 21, the Apostle Paul returns to Jerusalem and he's arrested. It's interesting that the man who was chasing down Christians to kill them just a few chapters before is now being arrested. 
and in true Apostle Paul form. When it comes time to give his testimony, he doesn't hold back. As a matter of fact, he's so passionate, so engaging that he incites a riot. And he's arrested and held by Roman guard. From this point on, throughout the rest of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul would be in prison. He would be shipwrecked. And from trial to trial, every time they let him speak, instead of giving his testimony, he would preach Jesus. The bigger the crowd, the more influential the person, it didn't matter, all the way up through kings into a court in Rome. As the book of Acts closes, the Apostle Paul preaches Jesus in the middle of Rome. Where he's held in a cell that was roughly eight by eight, four foot tall. It's from that cell that he would write to the church in Philippians. And use words like, I count it all joy. Paul would eventually be executed because of his belief in Jesus, because he refused to back down. As a matter of fact, all but one of the disciples is going to be executed. And in those days, there was a fire that burned a great deal of the city of Rome. The emperor Nero blamed the Christians for starting the fire. And because of that, Christianity entered into a formal time of persecution. Where we've seen movies like The Gladiator, where there were gladiators in massive arenas. Well, they would crucify and burn Christians in the middle of those events. But somehow, this message continued to spread. See, it's no accident that we're here. The story continues in in 312 AD. The Roman emperor Constantine would have a vision of the cross. See Jesus on the cross. And in that moment, give his life to Jesus. And he began to open up the roads to, to Christianity to allow missionaries to spread the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. In 405 AD, the scribe Jerome would translate the New Testament and Old Testament into Latin. It's the first time the Bible was ever translated into a common language that would be able to be read by most people. In 432, as the church begins to grow, a guy named Patrick leaves Rome for a little island off the coast of northern Europe known as Ireland. We we know him as St. Patrick now. You see, as we went into the 500s and 600s, the church entered the Middle Ages where it began to build its structures, build its base. And at the same time, without a wide series of authority, without there being mature, developed believers, the church also became corrupt. So in 1517, Martin Luther 
a young man who is so bent on loving Jesus and being the right person that God wanted him to. He, he understood the gospel in this way that, that he disliked the things that were inside of him that were broken. The people that were in his monastery would find him in the snow, having beaten himself so, so drastically that he would pass out, trying to punish himself for his sins. And in the book of Romans, he would stumble across this phrase, the just will live by faith. Which was a radical different idea than the church was propagating. And he realized that we're all made right by our faith in Jesus. It's not what we do. We can't earn this. And in the boldest move that you can imagine, he walked up to a church in Wittenberg, Germany, and nailed on its door 95 statements of how the church was wrong and how it could become right. We call that Luther's 95 Theses. And for that, the Catholic Church put a price on his head and wanted him dead. So he went into hiding. For two years, he wrote his wife these beautiful love letters that you can read online. It's really this great story of love as he was hidden away. But he did something in those two years that would radically change the world. He translated the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into common German. And with the invention of the printing press, now the Bible itself in 1519 was available for the common man to read. It no longer had to be interpreted by a priest. In 1608, led by John Smith, some of the first believers in what is now... England and the UK begin to celebrate public baptisms as they begin to see people come to the Lord and they begin to experience persecution because the Church of England had grown in its authority and this was a movement outside of their regard. And so in 1620, pilgrims would sail across the Atlantic seeking refuge in the Americas. In 1735, led by the great Jonathan Edwards, the Great Awakening would emerge in the United States. This is a movement where literally towns, entire towns would give their lives to Jesus. In 1738, the great John Wesley, who had been in the United States working, is converted to Christianity when he realizes that even though he could talk a lot about God, he didn't have a personal relationship with him when he was on a boat that was about to sink. He comes back to America and founds what we know today as the Methodist Church. In 1830, as slavery and other cultural sins were taking their hold on the United States. Charles Finney begins a movement of evangelism in the northern part of our country that was phenomenal. Finney would leave towns after having preached for several weeks and police would report the only problems they had were managing the crowds going to churches.
As a matter of fact, we've seen images that come out of the wake of Finney's movement. You've seen pictures of police on the corner singing barbershop quartet style, right? That's because after Finney came through, that's all they had to do was to entertain the people as they were walking by. Finney reshaped for, for us what evangelism could look like. And as the church in America began to take root in the 1850s, we began to influence the rest of the world. In 1854, the church in America sent out some of its first missionaries. Hudson Taylor left the United States in 1854 to go to China where he would become one of the most significant cultural influences in all of China. So much so that when the cultural revolution happened under Mao, he would not be booted out. He would be allowed to stay. And during that time of great persecution under his tutelage, the church would experience one of the most dramatic increases numerically that's ever in the history of the world experienced. In 19... 49, a man decided to go to a town where he was completely unfamiliar to lead a big group of people into a large stadium where he could at once proclaim the message of the gospel to invite them into what his words were, a personal relationship with Jesus. That man was Billy Graham. And in 1949, he held his first crusade in Los Angeles. As he began to work, Billy Graham reshaped the way we think about Jesus. To understand that there's a personal dynamic to our relationship with God. And he would hold crusades all across the country where there would be literally thousands and thousands of people to give their lives to Jesus and be transformed by his grace. That leads to our story. How do we get here? Well, 2010, sitting sitting in a stoplight, knowing that God had called us to plant a church. God dropped the vision in my heart to plant a church here in Alabama. Connected the dots that though I'd loved this place for a long time, I'd never thought that we'd be able to do what we're doing. I mean, how many of y'all know that all things are possible with God? So I went home and told my wife that evening, early 2010, what I thought God was calling us to do. We're going to go back to Albemarle and start a church. And she said, no, we're not. (laughs) No way we can do that. That's, that's impossible, Kevin. You, we can't pull that off. And I, I looked at her, and in one of those rare moments where I actually had something wise to say, I said, I don't, we're not going to talk about this anymore. I want, I want you to pray about this. So it was later that year, nine months almost exactly in September, she came to me and said, I think you're right. So in October of 2010, I began to share what God wanted us to do with a few people. Remarkable to me that they're actually here now and uh, a part of our church, even though many of them lived in other parts of the country at that point. Early 2011, I let our church know, and by God's grace, my pastor blessed what we were going to do and gave me the flexibility and freedom to do whatever it would take. 2012, 
first day of 2012, I quit my job in South Carolina. And we started meeting with a small group of people. There were 12 of us in that first meeting. For nine months, we began to plan what our church could look like. What this could be. And on September the 9th, 2012, Vortex Church launched public services. Now, that's what gets us here. So where are we right now? Where are we in in this journey? Well, over the past three months, we've been averaging right around 250 people. Now, that's that's a great a great start. But I'd just to put that in perspective to you, Albemarle is a town of 15,600 people. 250 people is 1.6% of the population here. Charlotte, just to kind of give you a barometer on this, Charlotte is 790,000 people. 790,000 people live inside the city limits in Charlotte. If you take 1.6% of the population of Charlotte and devote that to a church that's 12,600 people. We don't have the population density to deal with, but I want you to understand that what God has done here is significant. And here's, here's the significant part of it. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand, but I want you to think about it before you do. If you would say Vortex Church, the ministry of Vortex Church has made a lasting, eternal difference in your life. It's made a lasting, eternal difference in your life. Raise your hand. That's it. That's that's where we are. So what are we doing? What's our church doing? Here's the two things that we're working to do. All right, so this is going to be in your notes. At Vortex, Jesus has asked us to do two things. The first one is to invite the people of Stanley County and Central Rural North Carolina into a life-giving relationship with Jesus. You know what? Every one of us is sitting here because somebody invited us. That invitation may have came on Facebook or in the form of a a postcard that showed up in your mail. It may have been personal. It may have been somebody that you know personally that said, hey, this would be good for you. But we're all here because somebody invited us. And we believe that our journey with Jesus is a lifelong journey. The second thing is that we're here to invest in their journey to place Jesus at the center of their lives. We want to be the church that gives to you, that helps you. Every weekend we want the worship experience that we have here to be life-giving, to help change your life, to invest in you. And we try to find as many ways that we can to invest in you, which is why we do things like we met with our parents of young children last week, and we try to resource them, and tonight we're meeting with some more parents. We want to help you grow. So the question is, if that's how we got here, and that's what we're doing, I think the natural question is, well, then where, 
Where are we going? So I'm going to share three things that anchor us in and kind of give you an understanding of what the trajectory of our church looks like. Because in that moment where the Apostle Paul's trajectory was changed from Asia to Europe, every thing changed. The trajectory matters. And for us, this is where we're going. Number one, to reach more people, we will need to be in more places. To reach more people, we will need to be in more places. That means that at some point, our plan is to not only be in Albemarle, but to be in another city, have another church that we've started that's there, another presence, you can call it a campus. The way that we would kind of phrase it, we want to be one church with multiple campuses in many cities. And when you think of what's the trajectory for that plan, Right? Most people here in Albemarle want to grow towards the population. They want to move towards Locust where there are more people. When we moved here, one of the things that was very clear from God is that he wanted us to go the opposite direction. He wanted us to go where there was nothing. And if you drive east from here, there's nothing. Some of y'all are from there, Okay. So the towns that, that are on the radar right now are Norwood and Troy and Mount Gilead. Those are, are, are the towns that are on the radar right now. Central, rural, North Carolina. Number two, we want to invest in local missions with a comprehensive Program. There are many places in our county that do local missions well, that do a great job loving the church, do, do a great job assisting the church. But, but to be honest with you, I, I kind of feel a little bit like Tommy Barnett did when he examined the, the spectrum that was available in L.A. about 20 years ago. And he realized, you know, there's, there's a lot of people doing good works, but there's some things that are missing here. And so uh, Dr. Barnett, who's a, a pastor in, in, in that area, started the Dream Center in downtown L.A. where they help recovering uh, addicts, not only recover from their addiction, but give them job training and train them to be better people, to go out and do the right things. In other words, not just deal with making the wrong decisions, they help them then make the right decisions. They not only give food to the homeless, but they help them find jobs, right? And so there's a, there's a gap between that. And so eventually as God enables us to, we're going to start something here that we will call the epicenter. It will be a one-stop shop for local missions. It'll be a place that out of that we feed the homeless and train them to, to get some kind of gainful employment, that we help them make that transition into becoming productive people as, as God would enable us to do that. And the third thing is that we want to work internationally to train pastors and leaders to plant life-giving churches. You raised your hand and said, man, it's made an eternal difference in my life. We believe that new churches in cities bring life to the church itself. And so our goal is to work with missions organizations that already exist. We're already in talk with two of them to 
go and to train leaders in areas, resource church planters to start new churches internationally. Because we believe the local church is the hope for the future. So what can you do? First thing you can do is choose to participate in what God's doing by giving. Now, obviously, it takes financial resources to do everything that we just talked about. It does. But I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about being able to give your talent and and, and your time to devote towards building a church that makes a, a historical difference in central North Carolina. The, the truth is, is that right now, the, the significant barrier that we have between us being able to do another campus right now is not money, it's volunteers. That's the truth. And so, if you want to make an, a, dif- a difference, choose to participate in what God's doing by giving. Number two, support our church with your presence and prayers. Support our church with your presence and prayers. Realize that as you pray for your church, for your pastor, for the leaders in this church, for the the ministry of this church, as you ask God to do something significant, your prayers make a difference. One of the greatest contributions that Finney gave us in the 1700s was to understand that when they went into cities, they would send three or four men a month month before their crusades would begin. And they would just pray. Just pray and pray and pray and pray. Ask God, do something amazing here. Your prayers make a difference. So does your presence. Being here makes a difference. You're valuable in that way. And number three, surrender to Jesus. Surrender. Jesus. You know what's odd to me? It's that all throughout church history, the church received a significant amount of opposition. It wasn't easy. Starting a church in a, a little town in the middle of North Carolina is not easy. I can just go ahead and tell you that. But not easy forces you to sell out. And see, the church over and over again has been filled with people who in the midst of opposition decided, you know what, I don't care about what they can do to me. I'm all in to Jesus. I've surrendered to him, not to you. I mean, we have this going on in the world right now, on the other side of the world, where there are people who are executing people simply because they refuse to let go of Jesus. And see, when the church embraces that surrender is the greatest thing we have, God can take 120 people and transform them. So let's sell out, surrender to him so that he can come change lives. Maybe 
maybe even change ours in the process. Let's pray. God, we just thank you today. Lord, that you're a relentless and loving God. God, that you refuse to give up on us, that your presence is here. God, thank you for carrying the church through moments of difficulty in the past. And God, thank you for allowing us to be here. I hope that everyone here today understands that it is no accident that we're here right now. God, there are some of us that are here today that, God, we're not surrendered to you, but we need to be. And right now we want to be. So God, I ask that over the next few moments you allow that to happen. With nobody looking around, every head bowed, every eye closed, let me ask you this question. Maybe today's the day you want to surrender your life to Jesus. I'm not going to ask you to do anything like get up and stand up or move, but I want you to be honest between you and him. Are you all in? Are you all into this thing called Jesus? Are you all into his church? Are you, are you giving it all up so that he can use you? Is that you? Because if it's the you that you want to be, all it needs is one moment for everything to change. If that's you today and you say, I want to be completely surrendered all in to what God's doing, raise your hand right now. Awesome. Is there anybody else? Anybody else? So God, for those that are here that that want to give up and trust you, God, we just look into your heart and recognize that you're trustworthy. God, take our lives and use them to make a powerful, powerful difference. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.